Hello, and welcome to the latest episode of the Dialogue Out Loud series. I'm Taylor Petrie, editor of Dialogue, a journal of Mormon thought. Today, we're excited to have with us Keith Burns, who holds a master's in child development from Sarah Lawrence College and is working on a second master's in social work at Lehman College. In his new article, co-written with Linwood Lewis, Transcending Mormonism, Transgender Experiences in the LDS Church, Keith lays out the history of LDS policies and practices with respect to trans folk and also interviews several trans or gender non-conforming Latter-day Saints to understand their experiences. Join us as we chat with Keith about his research and the implications of his work for understanding contemporary issues of gender in the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. Keith Burns, welcome. It's so nice to talk to you about your research. Thank you so much, Taylor. I'm really, really grateful to be here as a fan, as a consumer of dialogue. Um, very excited to be here. Glad to have you. And and thanks for your really fantastic work on this. This was such an interesting article. One of the very few articles on trans issues. Uh, so I congratulate you on your great work. Um, so Keith, you note in your article that for a long time, Latter-day Saint leaders conflated homosexuality with trans identity. Can you tell us a little bit about that history? Yeah, absolutely. Um, it was really very interesting to dive into quotes from prominent um, 20th century Mormon leaders on sexuality and gender. And like you said, Taylor, the conflation of what we would now recognize today as trans experiences, um, conflating that with homosexuality. Um, and Spencer Kimball was really one of several leaders that um, spent a lot of time addressing sexuality and gender. Um, and actually in the article, one of his most commonly cited quotes um, does just that. It conflates uh, transgender people and Home and people who identify as as gay or lesbian, and he says to paraphrase that um, people who change their sex status will surely answer to their maker. And in talking about people who change their sex status, he's actually referring to, uh, in his words, homosexuals. Um, so for him, and very much the understanding of um, other church leaders, and I would assume church members at the time, was that. Uh, a homosexual was equated with someone who changes their sex status. So it was really a gender problem, fundamentally, is what a homosexual was. It was someone who was failing to perform gender correctly. And then in Spencer Kimball's words, at the far extreme of that was someone who was actually changing, uh, in his words, changing their sex status. Why did church leaders care so much about gender and how do they think that it related to biological sex? So we, we, you know, these are sometimes overlapping terms, but tell us how, how they thought about it. Yeah, that's a, that's a really important question. Um, so they were church leaders were essentially, um, conflating, uh, gender, sexuality, um, and, all of the implications of a heterosexual gender identity with someone's biological sex. So 
if someone was biologically signed male, that would mean that their gender identity was a, a cisgender man and that their heterosexual desire for women was supposed to be um, a natural, in their mind, uh, byproduct or result of, of that. And, you know, my understanding of why that was so crucial to Latter-day Saint leaders at the time, and then still is in slightly different scripts today, is just because of how important gender hierarchies really are to both kind of the pragmatic governance of the church, um, you know, institutionally, and then also theologically with their claims of the, uh, with claims and assertions about afterlife and how that's organized. So really um, this kind of idea of a, of a man presiding and um, a, um, and in the home and, and presumably in the afterlife, I think really over was an overarching and kind of governing theme of this really important fixation on gender and sexuality and kind of conflating it all into uh, into one. So when did church leaders start talking about transgender, transsexuality? Again, these terms change a little bit over time. When did they start talking about it more explicitly, making policies about it? and kind of walk us up through some of the the policy changes that have taken place over time. Yeah, absolutely. Um, very important context there. So homosexuality, as as I mentioned, really preceded um, discussions of, of trans issues. Um, homosexuality really entered into more uh, Mormon discourse in the 50s, the 1950s. And interestingly enough, it took about 30 years uh, for the term trans to a uh, transsexual was actually the term that uh, LDS leaders began using in 1980. Um, that entered into the handbook, uh, the general handbook, uh, which is you know basically a handbook about policies and doctrines and procedures in the church. Um, in 1980, a very vague line was inserted about transsexuals. And the and a punishment was associated with people who quote underwent transsexual operations, uh, and that punishment was an automatic non-negotiable excommunication. Uh, and that was 1980. Um, and then you ask a great question about the shifting of that um, from about 1980 to 2010. Um, there were about three or four modifications to that handbook language, and it wasn't so much changing the effects of the language, more so just softening it uh, and using a little bit gentler language. Um, several years later in 19, I believe it was 1984, church leaders said that the First Presidency could now review cases of transsexual operations um, which kind of took that blow off just a little bit of uh, an excommunication being final and non-negotiable. And then throughout time, you just saw language just get a little more softer and less kind of harsh. Um, but it still made clear and still does today that um, transitioning away from what they would call as one's biological, you know, sex is is not acceptable. Uh, and can lead to church discipline. 
So some things did change in 2020. Can you just kind of walk us through the basics of, of the policy changes that were announced then? Yeah, absolutely. So they definitely doubled down on the this idea that transitioning is not acceptable. However, um, there were some noteworthy changes. I'll start with um, I'll start with some of the some changes that uh, people like myself and other trans activists and trans and gender nonconforming people see as uh, positive or or hopeful. In 2020, church leaders made clear in the handbook that you could that a trans or gender nonconforming person could start being referred to by their preferred name uh, in their local congregation, and if they listed their you know preferred name or pronouns, that those should be respected. This is really a monumental shift uh, in my mind because you know just several years prior to 2020, there were prominent leaders, you know, very much discouraging against um, pronoun changes, uh, name changes, uh, Dallin Oaks being one of them who, you know, really made clear that that was not acceptable. And now here in 2020, there's a, a very marked shift towards uh, acceptance of of that. Um, however, there was also a change that um, was, that definitely raised some eyebrows and uh, was is still kind of hard to understand in my mind. But in addition to um, being against what they call physical transition, uh, which I assume they mean, you know, surgery and or some kind of physical alteration of someone's body, they also added in the 2020 handbook um, sanctions for social transitioning. That's a new phrase uh, in the uh, hand in the church's handbook, and it's not fully clear what they mean by social transitioning. They didn't really elaborate on that. And actually, some of my um, participants in the article discuss kind of the ambiguity of what that means to social transition. How do you really police what a social transition is? Uh, is it you know hair length, earrings, makeup, um, you know? So that's in there, and they uh, church leaders assert that a social transition um, would also be grounds for membership restrictions um, or discipline, just as a physical transition would. So let's turn to some of your subjects. Uh, you interviewed several people uh, that between the ages of 18 and 44, so sort of younger to middle-aged there. And you mentioned that it revealed a huge diversity of ways that trans folk describe their experiences. We've already mentioned the way that the church is kind of distinguishing now between social and medical or physical transitions. Can you talk a little bit about what you found, how trans people tend to be identifying, at least of those that you surveyed and interviewed? Yes, absolutely. Um, that was one of the most interesting parts of my interviews is just how differently people were interacting with the concept of transness. Um, in fact, to be perfectly candid, coming up with the title of the piece was difficult because I had a few participants who didn't identify as trans or with the concept of transness. Um, so, you know, I was using trans as kind of an umbrella term, but also recognizing the complexity of the term in that various individuals I was uh, interviewing were not resonating with that term for their identity. 
So I'll get into that a little more in a little more detail. Um, something that really stood out to me was um, this idea that some people were very much connected to uh, the concept of a gender binary, and some people were very uh, distant from that concept of gender binary, very much subverting and resisting uh, the gender binary. Um, so, for example, I uh, the 44-year-old participant that I quote uh, and reference a lot of, uh, her name is Juliana. Um, Juliana talks very extensively about um, her sense of uh, uh, femaleness. Now, Juliana was assigned male at birth and um, identifies as a woman. Um, and she just had these very beautiful and moving portrayals of how much she resonated with um, a, a female identity. Um, on the flip side, I had people uh, like Emily, for example, who um, who was very much um, in this position of their gender, other connection with masculinity, femininity, or neither, really moves in and out of context and and spaces and time. It very much uh, differs, um, and em someone like Emily was not feeling connected to really any um, any stable sense of of gender identity. Um, so yeah, those are just a few examples of kind of the very drastically different ways of relating to gender and relating to um, the the label trans. That's that's super interesting, and 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 this I think is is helpful as we lead into the the next part of this too. Uh, how did these members that you were uh, that you were researching? Some seem to have disaffiliated, some were active. What is the answer of how the trans folks that you were uh, working with uh, uh, experience? What were their experiences in the church? Yeah, the uh, million dollar question there. Um, that was probably the messiest part of my interviews was um getting a sense of people's relationships with the church um it was very complicated very uh very all over the map so to speak um you know it was a relatively small sample size so i i do acknowledge that um in terms of uh it not really being able to say anything quantitative uh about you know trans experiences in the church that being said, um, I would say one or two of my participants made it very clear that the church was an important, uh, significant part of their life and their worship experiences. Um, I would say probably about the same one or two had, had very much distanced themselves from the LDS church and had some feelings of I mean, some feelings of resentment and um, anger toward the church and its policies, uh, which, of course, is very understandable. And then probably the rest of the people were floating somewhere in the middle. Um, I had a few BYU students who, you know, had a messy relationship with the church because, uh, at least in part, because of BYU's guidelines around church attendance. And then I just had some other people who were kind of in a state of um, sifting through church teachings that they found very meaningful and relevant to them, 
and very much letting go of and rejecting uh, teachings that they deemed harmful. And I, I talk about this kind of cafeteria Mormonism uh, in the uh, in the in uh, the article, and that kind of uh, pick and choose mindset for I'd say two or three of the people I interviewed was actually providing a space where they could continue to engage somewhat healthily uh, with the church. So, yeah, it was very, very different set of experiences there and feelings about the church and its teachings on gender. So you conclude your article with some recommendations to reduce the conflicts between the church and its trans members. And I'll just quote something that you say. For the church to be a safe, welcoming, and embracing space for trans individuals, leaders need to reconstruct God's divine plan, either without the concept of a fixed eternal gender, or at least with the acknowledgement that all gender identities slash experiences are equally valid in God's eyes. Can you talk a little bit about more what you mean here? Yeah, um appreciate you bringing that quote in because I would say that's kind of my central argument um one of at least one of several um and what I mean by that is in order for I think in order for the church to really uh provide a safe welcoming and inclusive space for all different people um across you know spanning gender identity, I really think that um, we have to kind of go back to the drawing board of the plan of salvation, so to speak, and create um, a concept of eternal glory or eternal progression that isn't so inseparably linked to one's gender identity. Um, now, some people look at me and say, you're crazy. You know, uh, the church has been teaching for years, you know, the importance of you know gender and sexuality and its implications on eternal families and the afterlife. So I get that. Although um, I don't think that a pivot away from a core social category uh, and its implications on the afterlife is new to Latter Day Saints. Um, and in fact, um, Taylor, in your book, I mean, I feel like you very masterfully lay out the history of. Um, you know, racial teachings uh, and uh, and talk about, obviously, its implications for sexuality and gender and some overlaps and discourse. And I think in the same way the church kind of untethered uh, skin color from its afterlife theology to the point where they will say in 2023 that the color of your skin has absolutely nothing to do with your devotion to God and your position in the afterlife. That's kind of where I'm coming from with that quote, and is that we can have a similar transition and say, look, you know, how someone identifies in terms of their gender and in terms of their sexual preferences has nothing to do with the depth of one's character and one's ability to serve, to grow, to learn, um, all really core features of, of Mormonism. Uh, so we can really just embrace those kind of common values that I think so many Latter-day Saints have, and then just kind of disconnect it from social demographics um, like race uh, and gender identity uh, that just seem to cause so much exclusion and, and oppression and, and harm. 
so Keith, we find ourselves in 2023 in a, in a kind of, um, I would say fraught political moment around trans issues, uh, where we're seeing a real attack on trans rights, trans identity, trans existence in some cases here. Um, how do you think the, uh, uh, the, the, the church might better sort of position itself in the political environment on some of these topics? This is not something that you write about, but I'll just, you know, ask here. Yeah. Uh, oops. Very important question. Um, and I feel like the, I think the church can have significant impact um, in this arena. Um, I agree with you that trans rights have been under just blatant attack uh, in recent months and in, re in recent past few years. Um, and the church, in my mind, especially in the last kind of five to 10 years has really tried to, I think, take on a more moderate, um, political image. I'm definitely no political scientist, but that's just kind of my, you know, layperson's perspective. You know, you have president Nelson, um, you know, talking about the importance of masks and vaccines. You have statements that are relatively pro immigration. I say relatively, um, for kind of general church perspectives. Um, I, I definitely see the church kind of from a top down level, trying to distance themselves from kind of right wing extremism, uh, conspiracy stuff. And, um, does that reach always reach down to the members? Not necessarily. Um, however, I do think the church has a lot of power at the top to kind of rebrand, you know, brand our, our political image. And in, in the arena of sexuality and gender, uh, particularly trans issues and trans rights, I do see them saying some better things at the pulpit and, you know, talking about inclusivity and, and love and compassion, which I, I think is a, is a decent start. Um, I would definitely like um, to see them continue coming out. Uh, they recently came out in support of, you know, same-sex, the Defense of Marriage Act in in Utah, supporting same-sex marriage, um, some people are skeptical of their, you know, interest with that. I think it's a decent step in the right direction, and and I would like, you know, continued, more specific um, affirmations of policies that provide legal and civil, you know, protections for for trans people. I, I mean, asking them to shift their doctoral perspective is probably a lot, but I think they can at least, you know be a very clear advocate of civil and, you know, legal rights for trans people. Keith, thank you so much for joining us today. And it's been a huge pleasure learning about your research on such an important topic right now. So thank you very much. My pleasure, Taylor. Yeah. Thank you so much for taking the time to ask uh, these very thoughtful questions. We hope that our listeners have enjoyed this conversation and have learned something new about the experiences and history of trans Latter-day Saints. If you'd like to learn more, we encourage you to check out Keith Burns and Linwood Lewis, Transcending Mormonism, Transgender Experiences in the LDS Church in the winter 2020, no, I'm sorry, the spring 2023 issue of Dialogue and explore other resources on this topic on our website. If you enjoyed this episode, please share it with your friends and colleagues, and don't forget to leave us a review or get in touch with any comments or questions. 
We hope you'll tune in for future episodes of our podcast and be sure to check out the whole range of shows in the Dialogue Podcast Network. Thanks. Greetings, my name is Rebecca Deschweinitz and I'm thrilled to serve as a board member at the Dialogue Foundation and as one of the hosts of Dialogue Gospel Study. In each episode, which we record live the second and fourth Sunday of every month, we welcome esteemed speakers from a variety of backgrounds to share their insights and perspectives on the Come Follow Me lessons. Our aim is to spark meaningful conversations about the scriptures, to connect them to our personal experiences and to our understandings and explorations of the gospel. To stay in the loop with our upcoming lessons and this opportunity to engage with Mormon thought, culture, and belief, be sure to visit DialogueJournal.com and sign up for our newsletter. By doing so, you'll receive updates and timely links to join our live stream lessons. Additionally, you can catch up on our past guests and episodes by subscribing to Dialogue Journal on YouTube, Facebook, or wherever you listen to podcasts. Dialogue Podcast Network.